Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of A Second Chance Stories of Young Offenders. We're your hosts, Calista Lynn and Akshar Kesri, and today we've got yet another distinguished guest for all of you today. We're excited to introduce you to someone who was formerly incarcerated, but is now completely changing the lives of today's incarcerated youth. Please welcome Edwin Paragas. Hi, Edwin. Hi. It's so nice to meet you. How are you? Hi. Thanks so Thank much you. for joining us. Thank you so much. It's such an honor. And, and you got watching you guys, you guys are so empowering and inspir- inspired by all the stuff you guys are doing. Thank you so much. We're honored that you're Thank here. You. Yeah. Okay. So um, I guess we should start from the beginning. So could you tell us a little bit about your story being incarcerated? Things like how'd you get there and what were the different steps leading up to the trial, et cetera? Yeah. Um, you know, just a few steps back before um the trial, I was born in the Philippines and at age 10, the um, volcano erupted in the Philippines. So we were just, just um, this, you know, we were moved to America. We were evacuated when I was, yeah, about to turn 11 and like none of us was expecting it. It was really forced and we, we didn't really want to, but since my dad was in the Air Force, he, um, he had to go. So not knowing, not, not really um, being set and, and really having a foundation in America, we were sent in America at age 11. And that, that time it was, um, we adapted really poorly, you know, and we were already having an adverse, I was already having an adverse um, childhood, a lot of um, turmoil and, and, you know, my dad, my dad, my mom divorced the first year we were in the United States. They coped differently in the, when we came to the United States being immigrants and not really knowing what's going on. And, and I met people, you know, that, spoke like me, saw the world like me and and really saw me and embraced me as 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 Edwin, you know, because I was getting really bullied the first year, not knowing the the language, not really knowing. So yeah, and I looked at them as um like my peers, you know, and my first time, my first week I hanged around with them, uh, I didn't know one of the guys was had a gun in my uh, in a car. And when we got pulled over, um he put a gun under my seat since I was the youngest. I was 12 years old. And that probably set the course of my um my thinking errors, my behavior, my criminal lifestyle, because juvenile hall was probably the worst experience I, I ever experienced in my life that sent me to the way I see, saw the world and the way I, I cope with the world at 12 years old. So yeah, at 12 years old, um, I was there. I didn't speak English and LA, Los Angeles was is I didn't really know about gangs because I just came to the United States. And at that time, in the 90s, the Asians, um, they call it the green light. So any Hispanics that see an Asian in Juan Hall, they automatically attack them because they think that we're all from the, from Asian gang. And one thing I learned in Juan Hall is, is Midas right. Like if you fight back, it, violence speaks louder in Juan Hall and you need to be in some, some, some set of uh, groups. And as soon as I got out, I didn't want to experience that again. And that's when I reached out to the St. Pierce. I thought that even though they set me up, I thought that they were going to be, um, you know, the ones going to be protecting me. And I joined a gang at 12 years old. And that lifestyle over and over, like, I really embraced my identity as a gang member. I really embraced the, the lifestyle I was living. I became addicted to to substances. I, I became addicted to the to the criminality. Yeah, the fame, the validation I was getting from my, my gang, and over and over, I was really trying to prove myself to them that I belong to them and that my love is worth it, you know. And and in in an unhealthy way, and at age sixteen, um, 
I committed I committed um a heinous act. At age sixteen, I, I I shot and um and killed a seventeen year old um uh youth and today to this day I regret it and um at age sixteen um I was sent to actually I was it my trial only lasted not even a trial, my 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 court process only lasted three months. And at age sixteen, the week I turned seventeen, I was sent to an adult prison. They they have a thing over here for California Youth Authority. They send the youth to um like a little like a little um juvenile um, prison, but that year they changed the law. They call it a super predator, so they're not sending people that commit a violent um offense to prison um to uh, California Youth Authority. They're sending them straight to prison. So the week I turned seventeen, um. I, I was sent to a maximum security prison in California. And I remember um the first the first Sally, the first roommate I had is um he was a, a older gentleman. He said, kid, you're gonna die in prison. Do everything you can to, to make a name out of yourself. And that's what I did. And I thought that that's the way I, I latched on to my um to my gang behavior. I latched on to I need to belong to something that for them to protect me. And once again, I latched on to, oh, these guys are the ones going to protect me. These guys are the ones that love me. And, and for the first 15 years of my sentence, I I conformed to prison lifestyle. I did all the criminal stuff. I did all, all the stuff I need to do. I raised my hand to to assault more people. And that's what I did. And, and finally, um, around 10 to 15 uh, years of my sentence, I remember my mom telling me, um, I visit you every month, no matter where I got California, but you're not trying to go home. And that really hit me. It's like, wow, like my my family been there, and I didn't realize that. And I I I was really tired of all the all the the burdens and all the baggage I was carrying. I didn't want this lifestyle no more. So that's when I changed my my life. I changed my my life um for my mom. So that's um the gist of my my own prison my prison story really. That that was a lot to take in starting from your story no 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 we're so glad you're opening up uh there was a lot to take in from the philippines to this the situation when you were 12 to 16 17 but overall i can probably guess the answer to this but can you go more in depth about how your mental health was during this whole time especially during serving your time in jail yeah um first and foremost is because of because of my um trauma and because of all the stuff I went through and uh, I was really apathetic. I lost my my sense of empathy towards another human beings. My needs was really was more more um more f- uh, upfront than any of other people's needs. That was that's why it's so easy for me to commit so much harm to other people. But at that time, I was full of at, at already at sixteen. I was already um into the third the third year of my my um. My my addiction to speed. I was really into meth, and when I was inside prison, I actually blamed the speed part. You know, like, hey, if I didn't do the speed, I I don't I I won't uh, take another life. So I said, all right, I'm not gonna do no more speed. But one addiction to another, I started. Um, I started really drinking inside um inside the prison, and not only that, I was I was really into entrenched to the criminality and the high risk uh, behavior in, in prison. So I was really like addicted to that lifestyle too, but mental health part, I was depressed. I was so numb. I was I was really 
I, I just got tired of, of being scared when I was in prison, like in the first year, the first couple of years, 16, 17 year old, everybody's telling me this and I had to do this and I had to do that. It was really scary. And and it got to a point where I just became so anonymous. And that's how I adapted it. But mental health, I was not I was not in, in, in my best in my best version of myself, you know. Mm-hmm. Um that that's 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 horrible to hear and losing your empathy and apathy. Overall, would you say the justice system wronged you? Um in the in the sense that, you know, you weren't treated like a human being, would you say, in prison? Yeah. Um I just I just wanna note too that I definitely for my action, I had to always be held accountable accountability and responsibility yes. is, is definitely but the system definitely failed me um mm-hmm. starting from not only not only from the day i committed my crime uh, at 16 my life crime but at age 12 they you know and at, at that moment they treated us as they call us they're literally labeled super predator like we're unsavable it was totally oh, no. yeah it was totally punitive like the more we punish you we punish you as hard as we can and that's how you're going to change but with my lifestyle, with the way I grew up, being punished is is actually you know is actually normal to me because being poor, being hungry, being being in a third world country that's that's like like familiar familiar with me. So the more they try to punish me, the more they try to dehumanize me, the more I I, I actually use my my unhealthy coping skills and and then fight back, you know. And the way they dehumanize us in prison. The way the first thing they said is like, don't don't remember nothing else but your your CDC number. My uh, my number is K six nine eight two seven. If you ever forget that, then you have no identity, and that's what they tell us inside. And then my first my first um my first day inside adult jail, the the correction officers, oh you're that young guy, because they all know I was sixteen, and they know they know I was gone, and they try to throw me in um adult uh with another race with uh with a bunch of adult men and i really thought i was really going to get sexualized and raped and stuff like that luckily there's another older gentleman that says no do not touch this kid and that's the stuff that 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 play around me and that's the stuff that instead of trying to think about remorse think about transformation all i think about is just trying to stay alive and that part right there the punitive part it doesn't work it just makes it just made me more colder than than I was when I came in. Yeah, I can't even imagine how terrifying that was. That sounds so scary, and I can definitely see that like your perceptions of life have changed drastically because of your experiences. I mean, I feel like like so many other people are also going through like horrible things in prison, and like have been in similar situations as you, or have similar experiences as you. Um, so, what advice would you give to today's incarcerated individuals? Um, about prioritizing mental health. Yeah, um, for me, my mental health is, is is based on on the healing part, right? And I believe that pain, not transformed, is transmitted. So, I that's why you know just a little background. What I do is, I'm the first time in, in Los Angeles is people that's formerly incarcerated. We're called as criminal messengers, and we get to go inside juvenile halls and work forty-hour shift a week with you, with with the youth inside juvenile hall. Imagine with my background with, and and my peers get to go inside juvenile hall and trying to mentor the youth, and that's what we we're trying to hone in with this youth. 
It's not about all the, you know, not just the the, um, the therapists or the, the skills that they need. It's really the it's really the healing component. It's because a lot of these youth, a lot of these incarcerated people has causative factors to why they're committed to what they commit. What is those causative factors, right? What is it that, that made them that made them behave the way they behave and choose the way they chose? And it's all stems on the way they were thinking, the way, the way, like you said, the mental health department, right? So we we try to do, we try to to really go back a few steps and work with them through their trauma, through their childhood. And just build from it and see a see a different narrative of of how worthy they are, because a lot of these incarcerated people. Because I also go in inside prison and teach restorative justice and and victim impact. And what I teach them is, it's no matter what, no matter what you are worthy, and you have to change that narrative that you have a lot of we you have a lot of love, self compassion towards yourself. You just got to use it, and a lot of that stuff it's, it's it's the core the the you know. They they do everything they can because because of the way they see life and the way the way they um, their state of mind is. I mean, you it seems like you've definitely allowed you've gotten a lot of different lessons from your experiences everywhere. I know you did work at Healing Dialogue, Boundless Freedom Project, Transformative in per, Prison pro- Workshop, and way more. Yes. And I know you've gotten commendations, awards, etc. Can you elaborate further on more of the valuable lessons you've drawn from overall in your experience in the justice system, starting from when you were a kid all the way till now? Yeah, I think one of the biggest lessons I actually learned from mom is actually folks like you guys, you know, and seeing us as human beings, right? Yes. And the first 15 years, you know, I was in the maximum security. There was nobody coming in. There was We had A and NA. That was probably the only self-help group they have there. Then, then things started to shift when they started to really focus on community-based organization, mental health, wellness, and stuff like that. So they started having groups. So when when volunteer, volunteers came and look at us the way they look at us as human beings, that for me really, really put a light on, on myself. If you can look at me as a human being, then maybe I can, I can start looking at myself as a human being. Probably that's the biggest lesson. And once I still really started tapping in as being a human being, then I started recognizing that thing, that I am suffering, that acknowledging that I am suffering. When I started to really digest what suffering is and the trauma I that 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 happened to me, I started I started seeing other people's suffering. And that's when the empathy cultivates. So when I started to really understand what suffering and what pain and what what child my child abuse is and what I went through, I started to really see other people's suffering. And that's how I connect, I can connect with anybody. I connect with with other um with incarcerated folks, I can connect with correction officers, I can connect with judges, and, and and that's why I'm so, so, so well in this type of work, because I see person as a human being. And that's the, probably the biggest lessons that that I can really give to folks inside, is to really understand your, your, your root of suffering and to really feel it. And that will cultivate compassion and empathy towards other folks. And that's really what what us as society really needs, is just to look at each other as one, as, as, as one community. Mm-hmm. human beings yeah and from what you're saying it seems like you know a lot about this i guess in this field and it's really inspiring to see you passing along your knowledge with these other people and you know really having that motivation to do so um while we're still talking about mental health how would you characterize yourself after being released from prison did you change what changed about you etc 
Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing for me is, I mean, I took a lot of self-help classes. So whatever that's, I'm, you know, like my healing um, journey is, is lifelong. So having coping skills and having, having um, ways to when I'm activated and triggered and to really cope with it and look at it in a compassionate and loving way, and that really helps. Because when I got out, yes, it was, I did all the work, I, I healed, but it was, there were so many things was going on. Just a little story of what happened to me when I got out. I was invited to open up a transition home, uh, you know, for reentry of the folks that are coming out to go to transition home. And the first thing, the, um, the person that, that runs the, um, the transition home said, I just want to warn you, there's a lot of people in the street knows about this home. And they have signs in all the windows. They have a protest right from the house because they don't want they don't want you guys there and the sign says we have kids here we don't want inmates here send them back to send them back to prisons and stuff like that and so that one right there is just probably the one of the things that that i really have a hard time dealing with is the fact that i for many years i felt like a monster i felt like like i'm redeemable unforgivable because what i did that should be labeled for me the rest of my life and because, and that right, that moment is like, dang, no matter what I do, no matter what transformation, no matter, no matter my spiritual practice, I'm still going to be looked at as a monster. But luckily, because, because I have so, the, such a support community, such, such folks that I can lean to, I also have, I also have the, the fact that I was able to go back to my, to my childhood to really digest what I have done and what happened to me and show compassion, change the narrative. That was I was able to confront whatever's in front of me and then approach it in a, a much healthier and loving way. I think that's the biggest probably the biggest skills I have. It's really I really I really dug deep of my of my past and of my past action and what I have done and the cost of the cost of effect of my of my of my harms and the harm done to me. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is really, it really goes to show just how important our mission is to, um, I guess, just explain the misunderstandings that surround delinquency. Um, but based on your experience, how would you describe or explain the stigma um, surrounding incarceration today, especially with juvenile incarceration? Yeah, um, the juvenile incarceration right now is one of the, the policy that, that I really like want to uplift in LA County is the fact that they're not sending kids to prisons no more, right? Before when I in the 90s, they were giving us life sentences, you know. And right now in in, in Los Angeles, if you commit, you know, you commit an action like I have, they're they're sending, they're giving them back to like back to juvenile life on um, days. So they're up to 25. Because my understanding, my really feel is like you don't have to um sentence that you decades after decades for them to really get it, to really grasp that that the way they can transform, the way they can heal, the way they can they can um come out in a, a redemption way. You know, it don't have to be decades. You just in the need a community a bunch of community members really being there supportive. You know? And the Jonah system for what what I ex first experienced is just they treat us like we're adults. They treat us like some of us, most of us don't know any better. Yes, we had choices, but we were, we, our brain was not fully developed enough to really grasp the consequences of what we were doing. We were always trying to rationalize, minimize, 
justify a lot of the things because of what we've seen growing up. So when we're we're in juvenile hall, it's, instead of just saying that, you know what, they call it just dessert. Whatever you did, you throw throw away the keys. That's that's not helpful because a lot of these youth, they still have so much potential. We're most accessible to more changes when we commit our our crime when we're young, just because of our brain is not fully developed. And and knowing that, and and knowing that we, we take away the substance abuse and 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 the unhealthy environment, we put them in in a much more um, mental health wellness environment. It's a really transformative way and more more compassionate way to dealing with juveniles incarcerated, because honestly, we're not a lot of the youth I, I see I work with every single day. They, their intention is to change, but sometimes they just don't know how because our brain is not. It's not really fully developed. And that's why we have to be more compassionate and more patient to how we approach juvenile justice. I I know brain, yeah, based on what you're saying, I know brain's fully developed, I think 21 or 25 or something. 25, yeah, so, 25. Yeah. Can you share a specific success story that you've worked with a juvenile or a particularly, I would say, impactful moment from your work with an incarcerated youth? Or an individual? Yeah. Um, wow. Where where can I where can I really um uh really start? There's so many like in, in my field, you know. Uh, just just this Tuesday, and one of the things that I'm gonna do is I'm bringing a survivor of, of she lost her her son to to um to gun violence, oh. and she's she's we're gonna accompany her. We're gonna take her out, and and this is how advanced um. The youth that we've been working with, they're actually volunteer. Hey, what can I do to accompany them? What can I do to uplift her her life? What can I do to be supportive? I mean, yes, we can say like, yeah, they didn't go back to doing the whole whatever, but that right there shows me success just for the fact that you know what he showed. He's this person is showing compassion. This first person is showing empathy, because if you can if you can practice that, that's when I know that he's going to take a pause before he committed any type of action, even though even though the youth. Some of them take a step back. I have another youth that that was that got out, and one oh, he was walking to his aunt house and got shot. And so I was sitting with him in the hospital, and while you know while in a bullet, and instead of calling his dad, you know when he didn't really have a strong relationship, he called me. So knowing that even though even though tragic things happen, but he's reaching out to a support group, that's a success. That's when you know he's replacing his old, his old culture, his old support group, knowing that he can lean on other people. So there's other stuff like that. And I have a I have another youth that was accepted to uh to Berkeley, uh, University of California. Oh wow, Berkeley. that's amazing. And while while that's he was awesome. while he was a juvenile hall going to school. So yes, there's there's so many lives that we can uplift. And but yeah, we, brilliant we, minds. Yes, and we. And if they can just focus on one thing and and nurture them and 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 nourish them, I'm telling you, this youth will will come out in 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 way more than we will ever give them credit for. I think it's pretty clear that you are the youth's role model, and that your mom is your role model. Um. So, who do you think, like, what like what would you advice? What would your advice be? Sorry, to today's youth. Um, about finding a role model if maybe they feel lost or misguided yeah. you know, in today's society. Yeah. I remember uh, long ago, somebody asked me, it's like, you live the same neighborhood as some people. 
and even other pe people live in the same culture, same neighborhood, same environment, same lifestyle. But why is some some people can get out of the the neighborhoods, can get out of, can get can get out of the environment that we're living in, even get out of the, the abusive home? And I always go back to the and what I realized, I always go back to the protective protective factor. There's always that one person that will always, you know, what you can always lean on. It could be a grandma, it could be an uncle, it could be a mom, it could be a sister. That one person that believes in you. So that's, I think that's the biggest thing is just, just knowing that this person unconditionally will hold you accountable, but will, will, no matter what, non-judgmental, no matter what I done, what, what you do, and that's the protective factor that 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 people needs to really just be aware of. And there's we're all around, and each youth just is, is all around. We just gotta really see that. Oh my gosh, because one of the thing in juvenile hall when we when we first first started doing our our program, nobody really talked to us the first couple of months. Like who is this people? Like whatever you know. But we kept coming and coming and coming. We were consistent. You know when 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 there's when we sit there we're high. We were like hey. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to sit with you while you're in, in, intoxicated. But I'll come back tomorrow and talk to you because you're not in a state of mind. And at, at first, they were like, whatever, we're a bunch of weirdos, a bunch of old guys coming from prison and and telling us what to do. No, but in time, they showed that, oh, my God, this person is going to be there no matter what. This person really looks at, looks, uh, look, looks really looks at me in, um, in a way that I, I wish I was, they were getting looked at growing up. So that protective factor, it's all it's all around. We just gotta really see who's the ones to be consistent and who's really there. What's what's really what's best for them. That's amazing and so inspiring, and having a role model is very important. But yes. I know there are various changes that must be made to the justice system. So overall, I know you played a pretty big role in changing these people's lives. I wish you the bestest of luck on your journey. And I just wanted to personally thank you for your work because I'm sure you've made such a huge impact. And our biggest thank yous for speaking on our podcast and sharing your valuable insights. Your journey is literally the embodiment of what we should be and our message on this podcast, being heroes and a positive influence in society. Do you have any last final words you would like to share with the audience? Oh, I just, no, I actually, I just want to throw the same flowers at you guys. Um, you like I really believe you know throughout throughout eons and eons our our, our ancestors is storytelling is probably the the one way yes. we can reach people and move people and to mobilize people and for what you guys are doing to uplifting lives especially um in this field that we're so misunderstood I think I just want to say that you guys are you guys are so powerful and 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 really inspiring and so how young you guys is just like. It, it fuels me up to like keep going what I'm doing like sometimes it's really defeating for what we do but seeing you guys seeing our next generation is is such a, such a nourishing to our soul oh thank you so, so sweet much. thank you thank you so much um yeah we're just honored that you you know you came onto our podcast and you know talked about your experience because um you know what I found through like whatever like all, everything that you said was really wise i guess is the right term for it and yeah i just i just gained three brain cells from this from this <laughs> conversation so thank you so much thank it's, you so yeah. much what you said like your experience is literally like why we do what we do um but yeah 
Um, yeah. To the listeners, thank you so much for joining us for yet another episode of Second Chance Stories of Young Offenders. Until next time, remember that your story is still being written and that there's always hope for a brighter future. See you guys next time. Bye.